morning, Chap. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. And all you Alabama fans that moved to Colorado have moved right on back. Like, it's amazing how that works. Uh, it, is a, it is a good Sunday. I've had a busy week. Uh, been in Waco, Texas with a, with a church there learning from them how to make spirit for disciples, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, and then spent a couple days with our elders just praying and eating and having fun together and just dreaming about the future of chapel, which is always just refreshing. We have great elders and staff here that just love this church and love what God wants to do at this church, which is it's just very refreshing. It's not like that everywhere, and so it's just a joy uh, to be with them. And so we're going to continue our Galatians series. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. You know, there's a lot of theories out there on how to better change society. There's a lot of political legislation. There's a lot of, you know, social justice and activism, and, and a lot of that stuff is really good. But I believe that the basic foundational principle that makes the greatest impact in our nation, in our community, in our church, and in our families is not going to come from Capitol Hill. It's probably not going to come from the state. It's not probably not going to come from government. It's not going to come from tax breaks or tax increases. Not going to come from the school system. It's going to come from, I think, primarily one place. And that place would be the dinner table. The dinner table is where people gather together, where values are learned and values are shared. The dinner table is a place where memories are made and fun is had. And, and you know, our dinner table is like complete chaos at our house. A couple weeks ago, uh, RJ was at the dinner table with his shirt off, right? And so growing up, my dad never wore a shirt. He did construction. When he got off, he never wore a shirt. He'd be at the dinner table with, with no shirt on. And so I'm having flashbacks to my dad. I'm like, bro, like, why do you not have a shirt on? Put a shirt on. And so Alicia's boyfriend, who works out, does track, and he's a decathlete and all these things, is pretty built and pretty jacked, and he was at the house. It was one of the first times he's kind of at the house. And I said, RJ, could have put a shirt on. Why do you not have a shirt on? He said, I'm trying to show Baker what's up. And I was like, I don't think he's intimidated. Right? And so we just have these fun moments and memories built around the table. And I think one of the things that's happened is that we lose sight of how powerful the dinner table is. That his life has gotten busy with kids and with work and with careers and now even with phones, it's hard to sit around the table and enjoy each other's presence to share our lives with one another and to develop greater unity. And what's interesting is Ronald Reagan in his farewell address said this, he said, let me offer one lesson about America. All great change in America begins at the dinner table. And it's almost like he saw where we were going as a culture and as a society. It's almost like a prophetic statement of saying, listen, we can, we can try to vote the right people in. And he's kind of the hero of the conservative movement. But he's saying it's not about the president. It's not about Congress. It's not about the mayor. It's not about the preacher. It's about getting back around the family table and developing family. And that's what the dinner table does. And in Galatians chapter 2, we're going to read a majority of it here in a second. But it, Paul was trying to remind the church that he just communicated what the gospel is. He told them to beware of the false gospels. And he starts showing the application of that. And what he's really trying to say is the gospel makes all things new. It makes you new. It makes your family new. You get a new spiritual father. You're born again. Now God is your father. You get a new family called the church. He makes all things new. Your race is new. Your ethnicity is new. It's all made new and it's invited to this new table. Jesus invites us to the table of the Lord. 
where he's the host that invites us in to sit at his table and to enjoy his presence, enjoy his blessings, enjoy his goodness. But he's also the centerpiece of that table, where as you're at the table, we're focused on Jesus and Jesus alone. We're not focused on the, the decor in the room. We're not focused at the other people at the table. He is the centerpiece. That's what communion, is, as Pastor Brown was saying, he's the centerpiece of our salvation. He's the centerpiece of the kingdom. He's the centerpiece of heaven. And he invites us to this table just like this one behind me. And as he invites us, he's actually the meal. He is the bread that sustains us, and he's the wine that gives us life. And Paul hits this over and over and over again, whether it's in 1 Corinthians or Ephesians or here in Galatians. He hits it, but as he hits it, there's this invitation that he's sharing. He's saying, listen, it's not about Jews, it's not about Gentiles. We're all invited to the table. So I'm going to invite our elders that are in the room uh, to come and join me at the table. And so, you know, they're all getting older, so it's harder for them to get up and walk around. So uh, give them a big round of applause real quick. We, so, <laughs> now the reason they're walking slow is because we ate way too much at elders retreat. And so our former governance here is, is we're pastor-led elder governed. And so our elders are my accountability piece. They help us pace the vision out. I cast vision to them. They help us put skin on the skeleton of the vision. Um, and so we spent a couple of days uh, just praying about the future of chapel. You can throw some of those pictures up if you want to. Uh, here's us axe throwing. You can tell Jerry, if you get him away from Benita, he becomes evil and a villain. <laughs> Throw that next one up, and we're eating. We get to uh, go eat with Pastor Jim Kubik, who's a dear friend of mine who planted a church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We had to go be with him and, and eat lunch with him, go to his new land. They've been in, in a storefront for about seven years, eight years now. And got to pray over him and upon him and for that land that they're on and pray over that land. And so we just spent a couple of days praying together, eating together, eating together, eating together, praying a little bit, and playing cards, playing spades. Who likes a good game of spades? Raise your hand. Never pick Jerry Gross as your partner if you're playing. Uh, Jamie Bird was my partner, and we were losing until we found two cowboy hats in the lodge we were staying at, and when me and Jamie put the cowboy hats on, it was a game changer. I, I felt like I was Wyatt Earp and, and, and Tombstone, like I just had a new fervor, and we ended up winning that game and, and enjoying our time together. But we were invited to the table, and, and around the table is where those relationships are built. Trust is built. And you move from being a church attendee or a church a position to a family. And in Galatians 2, starting in verse 1, it says it this way. Paul says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that what I was, I was running, not running or uh, bad, run in vain. What he's saying is he had this revelation that the gospel was for the Gentiles, those that were uncircumcised as well. This wasn't a Jewish thing, it's a Jesus thing. And so he actually, Paul, submits this vision he had from Jesus and his ministry, submits it to the, to the apostles there in Jerusalem. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It, it's Difficult As a pastor, one of the hardest jobs as a church is to preserve the gospel for the next generation. To not add stuff to it, to not fluff it up, to not put a spectacle around it, but to preserve the power and the in 
integrity and the love of the gospel for the next generation. He says this, he said, uh, and for those who seem to be influential, those with money, those who had influence, those who had social status, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is the, the Aramaic name for Peter, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship uh, to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. And so there's this powerful kind of disagreement that leads into the, the Council of Jerusalem, which was this argument between Gentiles and Jews. Is the gospel, is the Holy Spirit for the Gentiles like it is the Jews? And Paul led that and he said, no, no, the, the same Holy Spirit that fell on us also fell on these Gentiles. And he goes and he submits this to these these apostles, Peter, James, and John, and shares with this revelation of what God was doing to all these people that were uncircumcised, that weren't part of Abraham's family, weren't part of the covenant, weren't part of the promise. And they said, we agree with you, keep doing it, just remember the poor. Which is amazing to me that in church world, the church has always been on the forefront of taking care of the poor. Always. And it's amazing, I mean, and I love, I think one of the blessings of Chapel is the Dream Center, which she was Lows and Fishes, that for 30 years has been this taking care of the poor in our community. God blesses that. But at some point, the church wanted to legislate that and stop doing it. And Paul says, no, no, we're going to keep on doing that, and we're going to invite people to the table of the Lord, the poor, the broken, the influential, the nameless to the faceless. We're going to invite them to the table whether they're circumcised or not, because the table is not the law, the table is Jesus. And he invites all these random people with different backgrounds. you got Russellville, Alabama, which it takes a passport to get across the river from. you got Johnny Flurry, killing Alabama, Petersville. you got Jamie Bird, which we, we won't even talk about Jamie Bird. His past is as long, I'm just playing. He, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and Aiden Batson. Uh, these guys have just been pillars but we all have different backgrounds. Aiden has a Catholic background. Jamie Byrne has a Jehovah's Witness background. Jerry Gross is a politician. If a politician can get saved, <laughs> anybody can get saved. And he invites us, all these different people, to the table. Not to the table to, to build around our likeness. Not to build around our past experiences. But to gather around Jesus. The host and the centerpiece of everything. And so what you need to know is, is point one out of that scripture is regardless of our cultural differences, regardless if you're from Cobbert County or Lauderdale County or Nashville, Tennessee, regardless if you're from Haiti or from Jamaica or from Korea or from China or from Mexico or from Guatemala, it doesn't matter what your cultural differences are, the gospel unites us together as one family. One family, it unites us. The gospel unites us. It brings, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew or Gentile, the gospel unites us together. And when you get saved, you don't just become a new person, you're put into a new family. And some of you, you have really good families you come from, and that's not a big deal. But for some of us where our family reunion is like a Jerry Springer episode, praise God. 
Praise God that I get a new family with new values, new relationships, new memories, new moments, new dreams, a new legacy, a new heritage. And I think what's beautiful about this new family is this new family is not built on anything that's temporary. It's not built on skin. It's not built on past. It's not built on experiences. It's not built on doctrine. It's built on a spiritual level that the gospel touches. And it's an eternal family that even though somebody might pass away, we're family for eternity. And so we may enjoy time here, but we'll also enjoy time then. And it's a beautiful expression, which is even more beautiful in a day and age where there is plenty enough to divide us, to disagree on, and plenty enough differences. Like if we just pulled, all of this room could divide over something. For some of you, it may be Republican or Democrat. For some of you, it may be Auburn or Alabama. For some of you, it may be Colorado and Oregon, because you're Colorado fans now. Some of you may be Florence versus Muscle Shoals. For some of you, it may be white versus black. For some of you, it may be uh, on anything. There's so many things to divide over. It's amazing and beautiful that we have something to unite over. That the gospel makes enemies, brings enemies in. Paul, who's writing this letter, was literally persecuting and killing Christians. And now he's sitting at the same table as the people he was persecuting and trying to kill. Because the gospel makes us family. The gospel doesn't say, well, Paul, we'll let you sit here, but you get to be at the kiddie table because we ain't so sure about you. You may be that axe thrower like Jerry at the axe throwing place. It doesn't segregate between your past experience because your past is done away with in Jesus. And now you have a new family. It makes strangers family. It makes people from different backgrounds family. One of the beautiful, most beautiful things about a missional church like ours is when you travel and do missions, it opens up your mind and your heart and your spirit to the capital C church that is not just an American church or a Bible Belt church, that the people in Guatemala that don't even speak your language, they're your family. In Haiti, when you go and you get to pray with somebody or they pray with you, they're family. And it's one big family. And Paul here is trying to communicate that, that hey, I don't care if they're Gentiles. I don't care what Titus is Greek. I don't, I, don't, I don't care because that's not important because we're united. We're at the table of the Lord based not off our race or our background, but based off Jesus. So when Jesus invites us to the table, he becomes the centerpiece. I'm not looking at Jamie. I'm not looking at Aiden. I'm not looking at Johnny. I'm not looking at Jerry. I'm looking at Jesus. And in the kingdom, grace is more important than race. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's like, I don't care about the race. The gospel doesn't care about the race. In the kingdom, grace supersedes the race. In Galatians 3.28, later on he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. I mean, there's no, no race involved. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. When he's saying at this dinner table, you may be Jew or Greek, maybe male or female, but when you're at the table, we're all one in him. We're at his table, and then we're in the kingdom. And what happens is so many times we lose sight of the fact of the table. We start looking, we start trying to build new tables that are people that look like me or act like me or vote like me or talk like me, and then we try to invite Jesus to our table. And I heard somebody say, if everyone around the table acts like you, talks like you, thinks like you, and votes like you, then you're probably at the wrong table. 
In the same way, if God agrees with everything that you're doing and saying or thinking, maybe you've created a God in your own image. And the church, when it's at its worst, is when we build a table and we invite Jesus to the table. That's how the, the heresies happen. That's how slavery was approved of in America, is they built this table of different values, and they try to get God to come and bless that table. That's not the way it works. Paul here is saying, no, no, he is the table. He invites us to the table. At the table, it's not that you change races, but your race is no longer as important because grace covers everything. And it's hard in a church, like this, it's easy at a church that's all white or all, all black. We know that Sunday is still the most segregated day of the week. We know that. And if you don't know why, it's because for hundreds of years in America, African Americans and black people weren't allowed to worship with white people. They had to create the black church just to have an expression of worship. Then segregation, Jim Crow laws kept that, reinforced that. And then integration happened, and we tried to integrate schools, but the churches were still built around race. But we kept inviting God to it. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I believe there's still nations and tribes that are out there. I believe black church is important. I believe white church is important. But I believe what's more important is kingdom church. And kingdom church is this. A kingdom church is a church that exists to gather around Jesus, not to gather around like-minded people, but to focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross, I promise you this. If you are at the foot of the cross and Jesus on the cross, you're not looking around you to see who else is there. At the foot of the cross, you're gonna be not going to think, oh, I can't, I can't believe this, this black guy is, is right next to me. And I can't believe this black guy. I can't believe this Hispanic guy. I can't believe this illegal immigrant. I can't believe this person. I can't believe, you, you're not going to have time to focus on the people around you when you're looking at the price that was paid for your sin. That's what a kingdom church does. It focuses on Jesus rather than anything else. And the problem with being a diverse church, as we were talking about this at Elder Street, is a diverse language, a diverse, the term diversity, which we've used for, since I've been here, is different now. The word diverse can mean affirming. It can be approving. It can mean progressive. It can mean BLM. It can mean liberal. It can be all the, and for us, it just meant that we're a bunch of people that are wanting to build something for God's glory that says, hey, we're not a black church. We're not a white church. We're not a Hispanic church. We're just people that come in together trying to show the glory of the gospel and what it could look like if Jesus is the main thing. The problem with that is it's been hijacked to mean something different. In 2020, we, we learned that. I didn't have the language. 2020 was the worst year for me personally. COVID was nothing. Elections are terrible. Give me COVID again over another election. Because what I found out was there was people that claimed to have the same values, but once the values were pushed, their values were exposed. We're the church in, in Dallas in Waco, and they said the same. They said, 2020, we're their diverse church. We learned that people assume because we're multi-ethnic and multi-generational, and we love people, and we're missional, we're in the community, we love West Florence, we love uh, everybody, we're so inclusive, they confuse that as being something different. And he said, we, we, we try to share our values that, hey, we're pro-life, we're this, our biblical values, but we didn't share them loud enough because people assumed we had certain values because when they looked at our church, it represented a whole lot of different people. What they did not know is we, we were not representing the values of the people, we were representing the values of our king. And I learned there's people that I dearly love 
that I thought had similar values that were Jesus first, were kingdom minded. And all of a sudden, I started seeing them thinking that we were on both sides. We should have been more liberal and more affirming, or we should have been more conservative and more this. And what I've learned is not, neither one of the extremes represent the kingdom. It actually came up with a term, they use it this way it says, a kingdom culture church is a spirit led, biblically based family of God embracing every nation, tribe, people, and language committed to worshiping Jesus and living out kingdom values in community. And we are clearly stating that we are for Jesus Christ, his church, his mission to the world. We are committed to engaging culture from a biblical worldview. Therefore, our mission is not, everybody say not, is not to align to any specific person, social trend, political party, or organization, but to challenge everyone, you me, all of us, in all spheres of society to live as disciples of Jesus and to apply biblical conviction in their leadership and also their influence. Prioritizing Jesus does not mean colorblindness, but simply means that we will honor Jesus first and then honor the uniqueness of every tribe, tongue, and people among us. The gospel does not remove your skin color. The gospel does not change your culture. The gospel does not change the values you had coming up. But those things have to be filtered through the kingdom and the kingdom values, but it does not change it. In Revelation, we see that every nation and tribe is represented, which means the goal of the church is not to go into Africa and make little colonies of America. It also means we're not supposed to go to Africa or Haiti or Guatemala and, and produce Christian, or not Christian, but American values in them. Our job is to allow them to know Jesus as the king, the saving king, and allow that to be the filter for their entire kingdom. And for us, it's the same way. What makes it hard is that we live in a world where no one filters things through Jesus anymore. We filter things through ourselves and then project that onto Jesus. And so with those things being said, also because of our biblical convictions, who we are as people, we're also clearly stating that we oppose any form, any form of human oppression toward not limited to the poor, women, the unborn, the elderly, the immigrant, and people of every culture and race and persons, even with mental, emotional, social, or physical disabilities. You cannot be a Christian and be on the side of oppression. Because Jesus is the deliverer from oppression. And so for us, we have to learn as people. Paul comes and he's saying, listen, there is no race. There's just grace. And he starts looking. And the church in Galatia was separated. Not over doctrine, not over Jesus, but over race. And it broke his heart. And the other thing he sees in the kingdom, there's no room for pride. He looks at the church, he's like, well, some are more influential, and some are better off, and they start looking down upon other people at the table. It's like us sitting at this table, and me looking around the table say, you know, I grew up in church, which I didn't. I grew up in church, I've never sinned, I've never drank, I've never done this. I deserve a special seat at the table, because I know where Jamie's been, and I don't know if I want to sit that close to Jamie. And in church world, this happens all the time. We, we look at it as, well, I'm not proud but when you start looking down at other people, and what it, what it, when it usually comes to is into leadership, where we think, I deserve a higher place in the church because I haven't done or been through what they've been through. 
And when Paul started seeing this in the church, it looks like things where, you know, I've lived a good life. I've been faithful. I've been committed. And it becomes the prodigal brother's symptoms of when the prodigal son comes in and he gets the special treatment, he gets favored, he gets blessed, and the prodigal brother saying, what about me? I've been good my entire life. Here's what Paul is saying. No one has been good their entire life. Whether your sin was addiction or brokenness or divorce or infidelity or, or you were just a really good religious person who thought you could please God with your good church clothes and your good church attendance. There is no good. In the kingdom, in, in the world, there's not good or bad. There's not, you know, good efforts or bad efforts. It's not good attendance or bad attendance. It comes down to this, dead or alive. Those things I did while I was dead. Your good works were while you were dead. But the gospel makes us alive in Christ. And one of the things that breaks my heart the most is when people who are saved by grace expect other people to earn their favor through works. I need to prove, I need them to prove to me that they're, they're really saved. Really. They don't even have to do that to God. And you start creating this hierarchy of people and problems. And James 4 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so for you, maybe you have a false sense of pride because you had a good upbringing. Or maybe you never had the testimony story of the brokenness or the falling away from the faith, or, or sowing your wild oats. Or maybe you have pride in, in your life because you come from a good home, or you came from the right side of town. Or maybe it's because you went to the right high school, or the right career. And maybe you start having pride in your life. Paul opposed that, says, whoa, there is no partiality in God. God is no respecter of persons. He sees grace, and that's all he sees. And one of my fears, I've shared this with the staff, in church world, there's been a movement of giving preferential treatment to people because of how much money they have. It, looks, it comes in different forms and different ways, but it's basically we're going to give them, we're going to make a special group of these people with money so that way they have more influence in the church and they'll give more money. Paul over and over says, whoa, 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 he said, stop. He said in 2 Timothy, said, don't give them a special seat because it looks like they have money. Don't, don't give them a special place at the table because you think they have money. He rebukes that because that's pride. And the third thing he rebukes in this scripture is this, he rebukes in the kingdom, there is no favoritism. That the prodigal son and the prodigal brother both have the same father. But also the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter are both sitting at the same table. John the beloved sitting at the same table. You go back to the story in, in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is sitting at the same table as David, even though David's the only one that deserves to be there. And so for us as the people, we have to know and check ourselves. Am I living in grace? Am I living out of pride of my flesh, my pride of my race, my pride of my ethnicity? Or am I trying to be favored by my good works? And when it happens, here's how Paul responds. Paul in, in verse 11 says, but when Cephas, talking about Peter, came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him to his face. Everybody say to his face. Paul is a gangster. Like Paul is not going to, you know, Passive aggressively post on Facebook and be like, hey, some people invite other people to the table. Some people. No, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's a strong word. For before certain men came from James, he was eating, tell me Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party or fearing the Jews. And the rest of the Jews 
acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, talking about their racism and their hypocrisy, wasn't in step with the gospel, I said to Cephas, which is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you enforce the Gentiles to live like Jews? Like, that's powerful. Like, I don't think we understand. Peter is the apostle. He's the one Jesus said, on this rock I'm going to build my church. He was the leader of the apostles. And here he is living and saying two different things. And Paul then comes to him and approaches Peter, the main apostle, to call him out for his hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is a major thing because we all deal with hypocrites. How many of you know a hypocrite? Raise your hand. Don't point at them next to you. Don't do that. Like, Like in Christianity, the number one obstacle to the gospel is hypocrisy. It's not sin, not addiction, not brokenness. The number one obstacle to the gospel in America is hypocrisy. People say, well, pastor, you know, I'd come to church, but there's too many hypocrites there. Really? Well, first of all, there's room for another one. You'll fit right in. (laughs) You can fit at this table. (laughs) Two, everywhere you go has hypocrites. At least when you're at the right place and in the right environment, there's a chance you can move on from being a hypocrite. And so here is Peter, the apostle, the one Jesus building his church on, and here he is in a situation where he's now become an obstacle to the gospel. And what happens is, the, the point number two is the gospel confronts that and it confronts the gap between what we say with our mouths and how we live with our lives. Peter was preaching one thing, that we're in Christ, all we need is Jesus, the blood still works. But on the other side, he was full of hypocrisy. And Paul confronts that. The gospel confronts hypocrisy. And it tries to close the gap between what you say with your mouth and how you live with your life. It tries to close that gap. And so it was Peter's hypocrisy. Well, Peter, when he's in town with the Gentiles, which if you, if you don't know the background, Jews despised eating with Gentiles. They viewed them as dirty and filthy. It was sinful that if you ate with Gentiles, you'd become dirty as well. And so here is Paul. He believes the message. He's actually eating with Gentiles, eating with them. But then when the circumcision party, the, the Jews who thought the Gentiles should be circumcised showed up, Peter ran off and was like, I cannot believe they were eating with those Gentiles. And, and completely push it. Like, oh, they're, they're still dirty. Even though I was just eating with them. So it wasn't like he just slipped up and made a mistake. He was fine with one conviction until other people saw his convictions. And he was afraid people might say he's just like them. So in our house, I'm not going to say she's a hypocrite, but Twee is the one that tends towards the hypocrisy. And she ain't here, so cut that out of the video. Don't say a word. And so last week, uh, I had to go to the grocery store to get a couple of things at Walmart. I go to Walmart. How many of you Walmart people raise your hand? Yeah, good. I tell Toys that, hey, babe, um, I'm going to go by Walmart on the way home. Do you need me to pick up anything? She said, no, I'm going to Publix. Do you need anything? I was like, I'm not going to spend Publix money on deodorant. She's like, well, I don't go to Walmart. I was like, excuse me. Meredith is in there. I was like, excuse me? She's like, I don't go to Walmart. I was like, oh. So you're judging me. 
you, you judge me because I go to Walmart. Like, this is the Walmart table, now we've got a Publix table in church. And she says, well, no, it's better for my Christianity if I just don't go to Walmart. And I was like, please explain. And she's like, I, I, I get a little judgmental, I get a little irritated, I get a little abusive. I was like, well, keep that at Publix and don't bring it over my Walmart. Right? And so it's the same thing. It's almost like Peter says, well, you know, I'm too good to be at the Walmart table. I want to be over here with the, with the Jew table. And what happens is whenever you start separating people into groups, it's always because you've judged them. Listen to me. Anytime you start separating people into groups, it's because you've judged them by a group. And here is Peter saying, I'm okay to eat with them, but when somebody else shows up, I don't know. And so Craig Rochelle says, hypocrisy is the gap between what we show people and who we actually are. William Hendrickson said this way, hypocrite says one thing, but actually means something else. He pretends to do one thing, but intends to do another. He is play acting, he's disassembling, he is hiding his real face under a mask. The word hypocrisy, we, we overuse it in church world. We try to tell people that are trying really hard to follow Jesus. But if they slip up, they'll be like, oh, he's just such a hypocrite. That's not a hypocrite. Jesus is perfect. You'll never be perfect. You're never going to arrive at the holiness he wants to see. But we are to pursue that. But as you pursue that, there will be failures, there will be mistakes, there will be falls and stumbles and all that. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you play act. The word hypocrisy actually means acting. It's when you act one way in front of one group of people, but you act another way in front of another group of people. When the Gentiles are around, you act like we're cool, but when the Jews show up, you act like you don't know me. And so it's an acting, it's a form of acting. It actually means put on a mask to pretend like you're somebody else. And so Peter is acting one way, but living another way. One person says, when you act hypocritically, you mask your true convictions and play a part that's not really yours. And so many of us, you may not think you're a hypocrite, but if you have certain convictions on Sunday morning and not the same convictions on Friday night, you're a hypocrite. Or if you have certain convictions, but when you're around a certain group of people with our kids, we taught them this, that they'll be have strong convictions about certain things, but when they're around their friends, they kind of push down their convictions because their convictions don't match their friends' convictions. When the kingdom of heaven, the loudest voice doesn't win. The truest voice wins. And if I pretend like I don't have those values anymore because I'm scared or I'm afraid, I actually start pretending like I'm like somebody else. And so what happens is, with hypocrisy, it is like putting on a mask. Whereas you're at this table, you're yourself, you're your true self, you know, I love you. And then when somebody else shows up, when the Jews show up, all of a sudden, you pretend like you're somebody totally different. He starts thinking, well, I had these values. I believe we're all, I believe we're all one. I love you guys. You know, I know your background. I still love you. you know, we're one in Jesus. Our past isn't important. But then somebody else shows up, and you're like, a new person. I, I don't even know these guys. I know Jerry's political background. I don't know him. City councilman, school board member, I know how he votes. When these people come in, Jerry who? Or you sit down and you have maybe more liberal friends, and you're pro-life, you believe life begins at conception, you believe we should support the unborn and mothers, 
but then you're on your liberal friends, and all of a sudden you're like, well, you know, I, I think there's room to, to talk about this and that, and you start changing your values based on the rooms. And you are a byproduct of your values, not what you say. Or you're sitting at the Alabama table. Oh, I love Nick Saban. I love Jalen Milrow. But then your Auburn fans come around, and all of a sudden, <laughs> you talking about Nick Satan? No, I don't like Alabama. And you start changing based on the environment you're in. That is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not where you're having ups and downs in life. Hypocrisy is when you're pretending to change your values. It's actually a social acceptance technique. Where in order to be accepted by one group, I'm going to play a certain part. But when there's another group around, I'm going to play another part. Because all I want to do is I want to please people, which is what Paul in verses 17 through uh, 31 says. I'm not here to please people. How can I be a servant of Christ and a servant of men? And hypocrisy is when I'm trying to be one person to these people and another person to these people and another person to these people. And you lose yourself because at the table, I'm not at the table to serve them or please them. I'm at the table because of Jesus. And when I don't get my identity in Jesus, I start putting on different masks to become different people. For young people, they struggle with their identity so much because they're so often changing for the group they're in, they end up losing themselves because they don't realize you're not going to be accepted by anybody truly except for Jesus. And that's only at the table of the Lord where he is the centerpiece. And so what happens is Peter is a hypocrite of hypocrites. His love was contingent based on who was in the room. The problem with Peter was he'd been there the whole time. Even for Jesus, he washes Peter's feet. He says, I'll never leave you. Jesus, Peter, 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 be easy. Don't, don't, don't be making promises you can't keep. No, Jesus, I will never leave you. He said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Now, and he denies him once, denies him a second time. Then a little girl calls him out. He denies a third time. And now he's sitting with a table of Gentiles who he believes are saved and are clean in Jesus. But when somebody else comes in, he denies Jesus a fourth time. Why? Because Peter cared more about what people thought than he cared about what Jesus thought. And he kept changing his values based upon who was in the room. And many of us, do. I find myself doing that. And we struggle. It's like we put on a mask to hide our true selves because we're afraid they won't accept us with our true self or our true values. And Craig Rochelle said this way, Jesus has zero tolerance for hypocrisy. He has unlimited grace for sin, but zero tolerance for hypocrisy. And for many of us, that's what it may be that you read your Bible on your phone, but you also look at porn on your phone. That's hypocrisy. For some of you worship Jesus on Sunday, boldly. But on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, people wouldn't even know you're a believer because you're so ashamed of your Christianity. That's hypocrisy. For some of you worship with other races and ethnicities and backgrounds on Sunday morning, but you disassociate in normal everyday life. 
For some, it could be showing the perfect marriage or the perfect life. But behind the scenes, you're struggling tremendously. And see, you're not based on what you show people. You are who you truly are. And you can't receive help. I tell people this all the time. You can't receive help. God can't bless your face, mask, but he can bless your soul. And so I have to expose my soul to God and to brothers in, in confession and help so I can be changed. God can't bless your fake you, but he can bless the real you. And Paul comes to Peter, and it's difficult because hypocrisy is so dangerous to the church. And I think that's why it was so pivotal that Paul is calling Peter out. The apostle apostles, he calls about because it does three things. Hypocrisy harms three ways. One, it harms ourselves. But when you keep changing who you are over and over again, at some point you lose your true identity. When you keep changing your values over and over again, you become a chameleon who actually has no values. And you become this person who's washed to and fro with everything that changes in life. But two, it harms others. All of us in this room have been harmed by somebody else's hypocrisy. Whether it was a pastor who preached one thing and found out he lived a different way. Or a mom and dad who preach, you you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, you need to go to church, you need to do this. But they're living like the devil six days a week. Or a friend you thought you trusted. Only to find out they were wearing a mask that wasn't truly who they were. Or a spouse who you thought you knew and you loved and you trusted only to find out for 10, 15, 20 years they were wearing a mask to cover who they truly are. But it also hurts the message. Nothing hurts the message of the gospel more than hypocrisy. And Paul is calling it out dead out front to stop it in its tracks because he knows the message of the gospel is only as powerful as the truth of the people that carry it. doesn't matter if the gospel is real if it doesn't look real in your life. And Paul goes to Peter and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to oppose you to your face. I, I like a good man conversation. He says, this is not right. And he confronts it. The gospel confronts that. It doesn't affirm anything. It confronts that gap between what I'm saying and how I'm living. The gospel confronts that. And it's always drawing us to integrity. And so why would he do that? Because it was that important to the gospel. Well, how did he do it? He did Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is simple. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two brothers along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He just walked out the teaching of Jesus. He said, no, this is sinful. It's hypocrisy. He said, he stood condemned. He said, no, I've got to help my brother. He goes to, so rule number one, when you see sin or hypocrisy in another believer's life, it's first, as the prophet Ice Cube said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Check the, the log in your own eye first. Is there any hypocrisy in me? Pray, search me, O oh Lord. Check yourself and then go to them face to face. Nothing brings two people together like overcoming an obstacle in their life. And go to them and say, Peter, bro, like you were literally eating with them. And then when these Jews came in, you got up and left the table like you didn't know them. Is that how Jesus would do it? 
Is that what the table of the Lord should look like? And if they repent, you've gained a brother. If they don't, bring two or three people with you that are mature in the faith to then address it. And then if not, bring church leaders. It's a simple process, but in church world, we're so busy not hurting people's feelings, we're hurting the gospel. Listen to me. We're so scared to offend somebody that we will allow hypocrisy to reign and people identify the gospel as the hypocrisy rather than the people. And if the gospel is going to be what changes everything, it makes all things new, we have to protect the integrity of the gospel. And the last thing is in verse 15 to 21, he says this, we ourselves, he tells Peter, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And justification just means you've been made right enough to sit at the table. That's all justification means. It means Jesus made you right to sit at the table. The point there would be we don't earn our way to the table of grace. We are invited to the table of grace. And Paul is telling Peter, bro, you think your race brought you to the table? You think your good works brought you to the table? You think your doctrine brought you to the table? You think your religion brought you to the table? No, you were invited to the table just like these Gentiles. In the rest of the book of Galatians, he's literally hitting. He's saying, whoa, you don't need to bring Judaism in this. Your law, your covenant does not bring you to the table. Only faith in Jesus brings you to the table. You didn't know that the reason race is not important and you can't have pride and partiality is not important is because no one earns their way up to the table. I don't do good works so that Jesus says, okay, now you can come. You don't have the right doctrine so now Jesus says, okay, now you believe correctly. No, you are invited by the king to the table. And it's an invitation for all people. You say, what's the table of the Lord? It's a relational, relational promise that God had in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve got up from the table because they didn't want God to be the centerpiece. And Jesus came to earth to bring the table back. And the table is where we sit in the presence of our King, where his joy, his peace, his hope, his love sustains us as the bread and the blood of Jesus. And we rest in his presence. He provides for us. He protects us. He guides us. He guards us. And no one there is worthy enough to be there. We're all there by invitation alone. Even Jesus says it. Matthew 22, as I'm getting ready to close, says, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So he sent his servants to call those who are invited. Everybody say invited to call those who are invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. That means Jesus has invited people to the table, but they refuse to come. And again, it's in other service. They tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, and while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. So the king was angry and sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burn their city. 
Then he said to servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Right? So the backstory just to give you is Jesus is the servant. The prophets that went out and said, hey, come to the table. They killed off the prophets of the Old Testament. So then he sends his son Jesus to come and invite those who are left to come to the table. He says, go therefore to the main roads and invite the, to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Everybody say bad and good. So it wasn't just the people that were good. It wasn't just the people who did life correctly. It wasn't just the people who lived up to the standard of the king. He said invite both bad and good. Verse 11, he says, But then when the king came to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so the parable Jesus is trying to share is this table is a table where he invites us into his presence to be his people. He says, invite them bad and good. Just invite them, compel them all. Invite them, invite them, invite them. That's our evangelism. Just invite them. You're not trying to pick out people who are worthy. You're inviting them all. And they come to this table, and there was one without a wedding garment on. And the king said, whoa, 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 everyone here, nobody's good or bad. They're all just good and bad. Like, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? What is the wedding garment? The wedding garment is the blood of Jesus. Which means I don't have to be good. I don't have to be bad to be at the table. I just had to be in Jesus. Had to be covered. Because when now when the king sees me, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus. And that's what Paul over and over again is trying to say. He says, I don't care that you're a good Jew. That does not get you to the table. I don't care what your race is. That does not get you to the table. I don't care what your doctrine is. That doesn't get you to the table. I don't care that you're circumcised. I don't care that you walk with Jesus and you're now a hypocrite. I don't care. What gets you to the table is the wedding garment, which is the blood of Jesus. His finished work. And at the table is where we rest in a finished work. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for one quick second. There's an old story from 1990 in the Boston Globe. I read in a book years ago about Philip Yancey. There was a young girl that she was engaged to get married. They put down a bunch of money on the Hyatt in Boston for a wedding and reception. I think it was like $13,000, which in 1990 was a bunch of money. And the day before they were sent out the invites, her, her fiancé called her and said, I, I don't know if we need to go on with this. I'm getting cold feet. And so she decided to stop the wedding altogether, called the Hyatt manager and said, hey, we're not doing the wedding. Can I get my money back? And he said, he understood. He actually had the same thing happen to him. He said, I, I would love to, but I can't give you your money back. I'm only give you back $1,300, which is the deposit. And she says, well, you know what? Keep Keep the reservation. And instead of throwing a wedding banquet, she decided to throw a celebration. For years before, she actually lived in a homeless shelter for a time until she found a good enough job to save some money, get a nest egg that she was going to use for this wedding. And she decided to have a celebration for the people that had been where she was at. And so she invited all the homeless, the broken, the addicted, all of them to her what would have been her wedding day and spent $13,000 on this celebration. 
And that night, the Boston Globe showed up and saw all these people at this incredible banquet that were homeless, disabled, addicted, and broken. Yet, they received an invitation to the party. And everyone in this room right now, Jesus has invited you to his table. The only question is, are you sitting at the table of the Lord? Are you covered in the wedding garment? And are you enjoying the centerpiece of the table? So maybe you're in the room today, you know, we're closing up, and maybe you're here and you, you have not accepted that invitation to the table. Maybe, maybe you said yes, maybe you raised your hand, maybe you filled out a card, but it's not an invitation to fill out a card. It's an invitation into a relationship, into the finished work in the person of Jesus, to sit at his table, to enjoy his life, to enjoy his peace, and to enjoy his presence. That's you. I'm not going to have you stand up or come forward this morning. But again, like I said earlier, there has to be a response to the word of God or your heart becomes numb to the word of God. So if that's you, you said, Pastor, that's me. I, I, I need to accept that invitation and sit at the table of the Lord. What do I need to do? Well, he invites everybody, good and bad. All you have to do is accept the invitation. Repent of your sins and confess that you need him. He washes you with his blood. He places the garment over you so you can enjoy the table of the Lord. That's you. So pastor, that's me this morning. I'm just going to ask you real quick, just slip your hand up real quick. So that's me, pastor. Slip it up real quick. Thank you. Anybody else? All over the room. Put your hands down. I'm going to pray for you in a second. I want to ask you to do me a favor before you leave, because we believe salvation is the beginning, not the end. It's a journey of walking with Jesus. Before you leave, stop by Connection Point. Tell them, hey, I raised my hand during the prayer time. They'll get a gift in your hand, some resources. They'll love on you and encourage you. Uh, but please do that for me. But Father, we thank you in this place for the gospel, for the finished work of Jesus. And we thank you for those responding to your word and your spirit this morning. I just pray, Holy Spirit, you seal this moment as their confession, as their repenting, that you seal this moment with your Holy Spirit, the guarantee of the inheritance. Wash them in the blood of Jesus, cleansing them from all unrighteousness, and set their feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We thank you, we bless you in Jesus' name.